Good morning. How are we all doing this morning? Hi. <laughs> I'm sorry. We, we, we had to have a little bit of fun with this, you know, having the, the tallest guy preach on the shortest guy on Zacchaeus this morning. Um, yeah, it, just hilarious. I know last week we talked about getting inside someone's skin and, you know, for me, it requires getting down on my knees to, to get inside the skin of someone that's short. You know, oftentimes when, when I'm at a concert or, or at a show or something, I'm the guy that people come up and tap on the shoulder and say, can you move or can you move to the back? Can you get out of the way? Because I can't see. Instead of, hey, can you move? So, you know, like, I, I don't have a problem with being able to see. I have a problem with people being able to see behind me. But, but trying to, to get into Zacchaeus' skin a little bit this morning. Kids, uh, I'm so glad that you are here and engaging uh, with the sermon this morning and engaging with the church service. I hope you liked the video. I really wanted to give you something just to draw you in and connect you a little bit more. And I'd ask that you just continue to picture that as we go through the passage this morning. Picture Zacchaeus taking the money from the people and the people just being so angry. Uh, continue to picture the people that, that were angry and, and notice that those people were the same people in the video multiple times. The guy with the axe shows up multiple times. The mom with the kids. Uh, the donkey shows up multiple times. But then also continue to, to picture Jesus acting very different than the way the people expected or even wanted Jesus to act. I would also ask you kids, feel free to draw a picture as you're going through this morning. Draw a picture of, of what you think Zacchaeus might have looked like or, or what you think Jesus might have looked like or the crowds or, or anything along those lines. And then I know a lot of us have it stuck in our heads, uh, even right now as, as we're just thinking about it. So, so I thought we could sing the Zacchaeus song together. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. And some of you are annoyed because that's going to be stuck in your head as we go, but that's okay. That little song has a lot of truth to it, but there's so much more to the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was so much more than a wee little man. There's more around the whole story. And Jesus said more than just, I'm coming over. There's more to this. Let me tell you where we're headed this morning. In this passage, we see that God's love is boundless. The way Jesus loves Zacchaeus surprises everyone. We just sang and got to watch the Carlson kids even act out these lyrics. Love so deep, you jump right in and just keep falling. Love so high, all the stars can't comprehend. Love so wide, east and west can't wrap their minds around it. Your love is boundless. 
Now, part of that comes directly out of Psalm 103. I'd invite you to close your eyes and listen as I read Psalm 103, verses 8 to 18. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. I hope you heard in that passage how his love is boundless. In verse 8, it says that it's abounding in steadfast love. In verse 11, it says as far as, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Think about that. They are infinitely high. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. In verse 17, it says the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. We get to see this boundless love in our passage today. So we're going to dive into this passage together. We're in Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read together. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was, able to pa- for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the, the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, thank you that your love is boundless. And thank you that we just got a few moments this morning just to sit and rest in that fact. Oh, that your love just goes beyond anything we could imagine, anything that we could dream. God, as we dive into this word, this word that you've given us, that even is boundless love that you would communicate with us, that you would give us your word that we can continue to come back to, continue to wrestle with, continue to dive in, and continue to seek to understand you. 
So God, this morning as we seek to understand, let us just uh, grab on to who you are a little bit more and be enraptured in your love this morning, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's continue on. Go ahead and grab a seat if you're standing up. And we're going to begin by just looking at the setup of this passage. If you're looking at your notes, you'll notice that uh, this covers Luke 1.1 through 19.2. And no, we're not going to go through every verse in that. But this is one of those passages that's really helpful to have the stuff before this to make more sense. It's like trying, if just diving into this passage alone is like trying to start a book in chapter 12. Or trying to start a movie halfway through and you're sitting there, well, who's that? Why are they mad at that person? Who is that other person? It's just confusing. You might catch a few things, but you miss out on some stuff. And the same thing here. So I'm going to point out a few things that we've been seeing through the book of Luke that Luke has written down and built up and added in. And so I'm going to remind us of the the significance here. So in verse 1, it starts out by saying, he entered Jericho and was passing through. This he is Jesus that uh, the passage is referring to. So Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's getting close. Go ahead and look at this map here. This map roughly follows Jesus' movements beginning in Luke 9.51. And in Luke 9.51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this map kind of shows the direction that he's headed. And you can see that uh, Jericho is really close. It's down towards the bottom. It's really close to Jerusalem. Jericho is only about 12 to 16 miles from Jerusalem. So basically, it's like going from NBC up to Cupertino or NBC to Milpitas. It's not that far. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's also passing through, it says. And that points us again to the fact that his goal is not Jericho. His goal is Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. He knows what he's here to do, and he's headed that direction. He's getting ready. Jesus has just predicted his death for the third time to the disciples. So it's important to pay careful attention as he's getting closer and closer to his death. These interactions get even more and more significant. Then it says uh, in verse 2, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And the significance of this is that Zacchaeus was named A while ago, we looked at the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus in that story is given a name, which shows that he is important, that he is valued, that he matters, and the rich man isn't given a name, and so it flip-flops what most people would think. The rich man's important and Lazarus isn't, but Lazarus is given a name. So back to where we were, we were talking about Zacchaeus. And the fact that he was given a name. And this is really, really significant. Because uh, 
if you remember, we had the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it was really significant that Lazarus was given a name when the rich man wasn't. It shows that Lazarus was important and the rich man wasn't. If you look through the book of Luke and and you're following along as a reader, you see that names are significant. Luke uses names to give people historical context and to give them certainty. He uses names like Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Tiberius Caesar to let people know that these are historical events and happened at a specific time. He also gives a genealogy in the book of Luke, again, to give history around what's happening. But then he also gives people names, which says that they are significant. And in the first nine chapters of the book of Luke, he gives 28 different names. And if you uh, are wondering how I figured that out, I just went through and looked. It was a cool project to do, just to see all the different names that were tossed out. Now, after Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem the number of different names start to drop off radically. In fact, between when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and our passage here, only three other names are tossed out. Mary, Martha, and then Lazarus from the story. That's it. And then after this story about Zacchaeus, we only get the names of Barabbas, Joseph of Arimathea, and Cleopas. So the fact that Zacchaeus is given a name is really significant. And as we can see in the second half of the book of Luke, it's really rare for someone to, give, to be given a name. So as readers, we should be paying careful attention to the fact that he's been given a name. We also know in the passage it says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, We've talked a few times about tax collectors as we've been going through the book of Luke, and we know that tax collectors were despised by society. They would take more than was required for them to do. Uh, They were dishonest. They abused authority. They they weren't liked people. Tax collectors were, were often shoved off to the side and ostracized. Now, it we're told that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And there's debate as to whether that was an actual role or office or not. Now, if it is an office, that means that he was despised even by other tax collectors. Because as the chief tax collector, he would be taking from the other tax collectors more than he should be. So not only is he despised by the general population, but he's also despised by tax collectors. But if chief tax collector isn't an office, which is more likely then basically what it's saying is that Zacchaeus is the worst of tax collectors. He's the chief tax collector. So either way, whether it's a role or not, chief tax collector does not put Zacchaeus in a very good light. So we could walk in with this negative view of tax collectors. But if you've been paying attention through the book of Luke, tax collectors are painted in a very different color. In chapter 3, Luke says tax collectors also came to be baptized to John the Baptist and said to John the Baptist, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do so. Tax collectors are coming to be baptized. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus sits down with Levi and eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Showing that this Messiah valued them. 
In chapter 7, there's tax collectors that were baptized. Again, mentioned. Tax collectors that were baptized. And later in chapter 7, Jesus is repeating the negative remarks that people are making about him. Oh, he goes and eats with tax collectors and sinners. But he calls it out saying, hey, this is something that I do. And in chapter 15, uh, those first couple verses actually parallel this passage really well. But tax collectors draw near to Jesus, and Jesus is sitting with them, and the Pharisees grumble. And in chapter 18, there's uh, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector going to pray. And the tax collector leaves justified. So as a reader, we could actually be expecting something good to happen here. For Jesus to care for Zacchaeus because we see a pattern through the book of Luke that Jesus cares for tax collectors. That tax collectors are changing their lives, are being baptized, are coming and following Jesus. But then we're told that Zacchaeus was rich. The end of verse 2. And if we've been paying attention through the book of Luke, we see that the rich are continually condemned by Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 53, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. In chapter 6, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In chapter 8, as Jesus is talking about the different seeds that are sown, it says that seeds are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. In chapter 12, Jesus talks about the rich fool who builds bigger barns. And he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In chapter 16, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. And in chapter 18, we just had Jesus' interaction with the rich ruler. Uh, and Jesus says, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So, as a reader, we would expect Jesus to condemn Zacchaeus. And so those two things bring us to the conflict. Already, the reader's confused. What's going to happen here? We know that tax collectors are justified and loved by Jesus. But the rich are controlled and condemned by Jesus. We see connections with the healing of the blind man that just happened. The blind man was ostracized by society and Jesus had compassion on him. And here Zacchaeus is ostracized by society by being a tax collector. So would Jesus then have compassion on him as well? But you also see that it's a little different because the blind man was ostracized due to no fault of his own, whereas Zacchaeus was ostracized due to his own uh, negative actions towards other people. But we also see connections with the rich young ruler, where Jesus calls out the fault of the rich young ruler and tells him to get rid of all his wealth and possessions, and the ruler walks away sad. He's condemned instead of healed. So what's going to happen here? Is Zacchaeus going to be healed or is he going to be condemned? Does he fall in the category of the rich or does he fall in the category of the tax collectors? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 7. It says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, I know some of you are wondering about the sycamore tree and wondering if there's significance there. Uh, No, there's nothing significant. A sycamore tree is a common tree, boring, really easy to climb. That's it, okay? Now, going back to this conflict, what happens? Well, we can see here he's being treated like the blind man. Jesus is reaching out to him. And the reaction from the people that were watching Well, remember, the people that watched Jesus heal the blind man praised God after they saw Jesus heal. But what about these people? What did they do when they saw Jesus reach out to Zacchaeus? It says in verse 7, they all grumbled. Now, the view at the time was to accept the hospitality of a man whose wealth is ill-gotten is to become a partner with him in his crimes. So people would ostracize someone to teach them to stop doing wrong. They're looking at Zacchaeus and they're going, nope, like Jesus, your job in this should be to shun him. And you sitting down and eating with him is saying that you're connecting with him. And we've seen before this grumbling in the book of Luke. In chapter 5, it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And in 15, 1 to 2, it says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, here in this passage, we don't just have Pharisees and scribes grumbling, but rather it says they all grumbled. Right now, it's time for us to understand the crowd and to get inside the skin of the crowd. The people that were mad, the people that were grumbling, were the very people that Zacchaeus had been robbing. Here they are in Jericho. And Zacchaeus lived in Jericho, and he was the tax collector for Jericho. So he's been going around to these people's homes. He's been pulling money from them. He's been taking from them. They recognize him. They know who he is. And so, of course, they start grumbling. Kids, do you remember the video? You remember how the people that Zacchaeus robbed later showed up and were listening to Jesus. And then they see Zacchaeus and they get mad at him and they're trying to chop down the tree that he's in. And they're all upset because they know who he is. They know what he's done. By all accounts, they had every right to be upset. They had every right to demand justice, which is why they may very well have kept him from seeing Jesus. I mean, we know that Zacchaeus wasn't able to see Jesus because he was short in stature. But if you think about it, you, you that are short of stature approach a crowd You'd be able to see someone just by going up to people, excuse me, can I get through? Excuse me, can I get around? Excuse me, I just want to take a look and see, right? And you'd be able to see what's going on just by asking, just by kind of working your way through closer to the front. 
But I imagine Zacchaeus coming up to the crowd and saying, excuse me, can I get through? And they turn and look at who it is, say, absolutely not. I'm not going to let you in. I know who you are, Zacchaeus. You have nothing to do here. You need to leave. And then Jesus goes over to this guy's house. It says, when they saw it, they all grumbled. They saw Jesus interact with Zacchaeus. They knew what Jesus was headed to do. And maybe they're thinking, sure, Jesus, look, you healed that blind guy, and that was really cool. But what are you doing talking to this guy? Jesus, this guy didn't hurt just anybody. This guy hurt me. Now it's time to really get inside their skin. Replace Zacchaeus with someone that has hurt you. Replace Zacchaeus with someone that's hurt you. And then you see Jesus spending time with that person. Going and having dinner with that person. What emotions does that drum up in you? Maybe you're angry at Jesus for wanting to spend time with that person. Maybe you feel like he's betrayed you. Aren't you on my side in this, Lord? Or maybe you think he's wasting his time. That person will never change. There's no way they would give their life over to Jesus. Now, if you think or feel either of these things, all that it means is that you have room to grow in your faith. Because of course, Jesus is for you. Of course, he fights for you. He does the same for the person that's hurt you. Jesus is able to save the person that may seem entirely unsavable. The person that hurt you is not beyond the reach of Jesus. Now, some of you genuinely want that person to experience the grace of Jesus. Jesus extended that grace to Zacchaeus. In fact, he forced it on Zacchaeus. Look again in our passage, starting in verse 5. And when Jesus was about to, uh, when, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We finally get the full answer to our initial question. Jesus offered grace to Zacchaeus. He healed Zacchaeus. And we can see the change in Zacchaeus. First of all, he's excited that Jesus wants to spend time with him. Nobody else did. 
But granted, that was his own doing. His robbing, his taking, his stealing had pushed him away from everybody else. But he's now excited. Wow, Jesus wants to spend time with me. What happens next is that he actually hears the grumbling from the people. Right here, it says, Zacchaeus stood in verse 8. And that same word stood is the same Greek word uh, that's uh, translated as stopped in chapter 18, verse 40, when Jesus stops walking to engage with the blind man. So when it's saying that Zacchaeus stood, it, it's, it's basically saying that he stopped in his place and stood right there. So here they're grumbling, and Zacchaeus stops, and he hears the grumbling. And he finally realizes how his actions may have hurt others, and he makes a vow to change. Now, there's a lot of interesting thing, uh, things to, to get into around the amounts that he gives. But we're not going to get into all of that. There's one thing that I want to point out. His action reveals his heart. It shows that he wants to live a new life. Remember, the rich young ruler that we just interacted with couldn't give his possessions away because he didn't want to change. He didn't want a new life. But here Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Now it's important to catch that Zacchaeus' giving is not what brings salvation. He didn't receive salvation because he did something good. Look, Lord, I'm going to give, and so that'll get me salvation, right? No. Rather, his giving is evidence of his salvation. And Jesus makes this clear in verse 10 when he says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who's doing the saving? The Son of Man. Who's doing the work? Jesus, not Zacchaeus. Jesus does the saving. Zacchaeus isn't saving himself by giving away the money. Jesus is saving Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus's reaction to that, Zacchaeus's change, is to go and give away his money. Friends, this is the grace that Jesus had to offer. This is the grace that he gives us. And this grace is Boundless. Absolutely boundless. This grace pursues. We see this in this passage over and over. It says that Jesus seeks and saves. That's pursuit. We're told that Jesus came to Zacchaeus, that he called Zacchaeus by name. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, saying, I know you. You are important. You matter. You have value. You know what it feels like when someone walks up to you and remembers your name and says your name, how much that matters, how important that is. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. And then Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' life. I'm staying at your house today, Zacchaeus. Luke has already made this pursuit crystal clear. The lost sheep is pursued by the shepherd. The lost coin is pursued by the owner. In Romans 5, 8, it says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
many commentaries and uh, even text references go back to Ezekiel 34. Let me just read to you a few verses out of Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. You see the pursuit? And I will bring them out from all the peoples and gather them to their countries. And I will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God seeks the lost and draws them in. We also see in this passage that he executes justice. So yes, God is just. Yes, the guilty are punished. But clearly from our passage, clearly from knowing Jesus and and seeing how he interacts with people, his approach to justice is radically different from ours. Who gets justice, when they get justice, how they get justice, all of that. So we trust him with that. We trust that his justice is on his terms and his timing. And so here's what we do. Romans 12, starting in verse 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our job is to extend boundless grace, just like Jesus does. This grace is boundless in the fact that it pursues. It's also boundless in the fact that it is available to those that we may deem unworthy. Remember what the crowd said? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. May we move from grumbling at this to celebrating this. Could you imagine the crowd reacting in a different way and praising God? Hey, he's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. That's fantastic, and we're excited about that. Now, sure, there's a lot of deep hurt, and so it was difficult for them. And so, yes, they grumbled. But may we celebrate when an enemy of ours finds Jesus. When an enemy of ours shows up at church, starts asking spiritual questions, may that move us to celebrate. Wow. Jesus, you're doing a work in that person's life. 
This is God's boundless grace. This grace is boundless because it changes lives. It changed Zacchaeus' life. It changed my life. And it changed your life as well. Or, if it hasn't yet, it can change your life. Friends, God's grace is boundless. His love is boundless. His grace-filled interaction with Zacchaeus ends around a table where I imagine they are celebrating Zacchaeus' new life in Jesus. Not long after, Jesus sat around another table with his disciples and told them to use this meal to remember him. And then he went to the cross unjustly and took the penalty that the people wanted Zacchaeus to take. The penalty Zacchaeus deserved but also the penalty that I deserve. The penalty you deserve. And he did it gladly. That is boundless grace. Let's remember that the grace the people didn't want Zacchaeus to have was the very same grace that each and every one of them needed. The justice we want exacted on those that have hurt us is the very same justice we are spared from through the cross. So if he can give me grace, can't he give it to my enemy too? He pursued me and invited himself into my life. Maybe he wants to do the same for the person that's hurt me. And maybe, just maybe, he is totally able to do that. Hey, he brought me to him. He can do it for them too. We're going to take communion shortly. I hope you have your elements ready. If not, grab them real quick. Then use this next song to reflect on God's boundless grace and love that he has extended to you. Remember all that he has done for you and realize that that very same grace and love is available to all, to the person that you may think is unsavable. Let's pray. God, thank you for extending grace to me. Thank you also for extending grace to the people that that I not necessarily would. That shows that you are God and I am not. God, as we prepare for communion, let us just rest and remember in the fact that you died for us, that you took that penalty for us. God, we celebrate that and we're thankful for that. But God, we also need to remember that that grace is available to those that we may deem unworthy. Heck, the fact that it's available to us shows that it's available to those that are unworthy because each one of us is unworthy. None of us are worthy of your grace, God. But you extend it to us and for that we are so grateful and so thankful.
So God, as we sit and reflect, help us be drawn back to what you've done for us. And help us even to start praying for someone that needs that same grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.